Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. Hockey may be Canada's game, but some really ugly stuff has come out over the past few years about hockey culture that doesn't make anyone proud. Justin Davis considered himself lucky to rise through the ranks all the way to play professionally, but after he'd finished his run in the game, he came to see it quite differently. He writes about that in his new book. It's called Conflicted Scars, An Average Player's Journey to the NHL. And Justin Davis joins us now. I know, first of all, welcome. It's great to meet you. Great to have you here. Glad to be here. The, the first thing I thought of when I saw the subtitle of your book is, you know, you are not an average player. You know that, right? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you're taught to be humble when you play. So the higher the level you get, you realize maybe you weren't as good as the other players. So you see yourself as that player and you don't recognize that you may be better than the other. You may be? Justin. You may be better than the Justin, other. you're one of the top, even though you were not Wayne Gretzky, right. you are one of the top like point zero 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 one best percent best players in the world. You are. Yeah, and I, I guess the book's here to remind me of that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been a journey. Here is what you write in the book, and I must confess, I have read a lot of hockey books, and I have never read a line like this before. You write, the truth is, I think I hate hockey. I hated hockey at many points when I played. I hated it at the end of my career, and I think I hate it now. The game of hockey is broken. It leaves scars inside us. We keep hidden. And only now am I ready to talk about it. You are how old? 44. How come only now? I think when you evaluate yourself as you get older, I think you bury a lot of things inside. And uh, as my son started to come the age that I, 16, 17, when I went through a lot of the stuff that I buried deep inside, I realized that uh, the reason I carry so much weight and anxiety and bouts of depression and my body hurts when I wake up is because of hockey. And uh, even though it gave me uh, the profile and and the fame at times that it did, I hate the fact what it's done to me and where, I, where I'm going through some things I'm going through right now. Even with all of, and we will get into some of the details. I read the book. It's quite, it's shocking what you've been through. Any concerns about saying out loud what you have said out loud in this book? Oh, of course. I mean, when I wrote it, it was like, you're always taught what's said in the room stays in the room. So when I wrote the book, it was initially just to my kids and uh, so that they knew who their dad was in case uh, memory issues kept popping up along the way. And you got three kids, two teenagers and one who's almost a teenager. Yep, you got it. And uh, so it was just kind of a story to them that I thought nobody would see. And in 15 years, maybe we pull it out of the drawer and I give it to them. And uh uh, so, of course, there's a fear as soon as someone says, we're going to publish this and people are going to read about your life. I'm a teacher. So when I walk down the <laughs> hall, uh, kids I teach know some of the kind of the horrors kind of or things that I grew up with and some of the things that I've done. But uh, uh, the feedback's been fantastic. And teammates has always been supporting and, uh, and I've had a great avenue just to talk. I had a lot of teachers back in the day. I don't remember any who were 6'4", 2... How much you weigh? Well, we'll say 220. We'll be generous. 6'4", 220. But anyway, there are... I mean, let's face it, there are a lot of people who have experienced in the game what you experienced. Um, not just the bullying, not just the hazing, not just the, uh, the difficulties dealing with coaches, uh, not just the sort of 
It didn't work out, you know, some things the way you'd hoped. But they don't say out loud they hate hockey. Why do you think your experience might be different from theirs? I think I just hit a point where I'm just comfortable with who I am. Um, I got together last Friday night for, for wings with a couple former teammates. And we had no problem sitting around the room talking about some great stories and things that happened. And the book's been a great uh, avenue for us to to talk about the bad things that happened. So now we're talking about that behind closed doors and and uh, it's opened up some eyes of what happened to us. So I think it's been good that way and people are just starting to talk. But I think we're all afraid to expose things. And uh, I mean, I said I'm 44 years old and I talk about a coach in the book and uh, and I got a phone call from him wanting to talk about some things that had been written. And Is this one of the coaches you named or didn't name? I didn't name, but I mean, I sat there as a 44-year-old, three kids and a teacher, and I was afraid to take the phone call hmm. because I still kind of had that fear inside me. So when we talk about why, do we, why we don't talk, I think we're still under, uh, feel like we're under control of some of these people. And it's only now that, that we're starting to feel comfortable with ourselves. Well, let's go back and tell a bit of the story and then people will get a better understanding of why your feelings about hockey are so mixed these days. You were, it started, I guess, in Flamborough. Yes. You were a, you were a phenomenal hockey player. You were scoring 200 plus points in seasons with 50 games. I mean, it was crazy. Racking up scoring records amazingly. And yet, you said everybody hated you. Why did they hate you? Uh, times were different back then where small town people played hockey in small towns. Our parents didn't drive us uh, 100 kilometers to a practice and didn't have NHL dreams when we were five or six. So uh, where I might now be playing triple A hockey, I was playing single A hockey and, and, and scoring and scoring and scoring. And I think parents are always jealous that either their son isn't doing the same things or that you're selfish and they want to bring you down to their level. So Parents on the other teams? My own team and other teams. I remember I talk in the book about uh, even at the age of five or six, walking out of the arena with my head down or going out back doors or winning an MVP of a game and putting it in my bag and just trying to walk out to the car and meeting my parents there just because uh, you're embarrassed or you just don't want to interact with people in the lobby. and. Then I thought that was normal, and looking back, like I said, my own kid coming out of the arena, you just realize how naive you were to everything, and uh, and it is a huge chapter in my life on uh, things I'm dealing with even to this day. When you're a five-year-old kid and you look up in the stands and you see a hockey mom giving you two birds <laughs> and frothing at the mouth swearing at you, what goes through your mind? Well, I think you're just wondering, first, what's wrong with the person and why are they so <laughs> angry, but, I mean, you go to... You go to sporting events now and you still go to minor hockey and there's some people that have lost a lot of perspective on, uh, on the game and, and why their kid is there. How much of the fact, how much of the broken aspects of hockey today would you lay at the feet of parents who just really don't understand that this is supposed to be a fun game for kids? Yeah, I think, I mean, the majority of it. And I think the majority of these people are people who have never played the game, have never played the game at a high level. So they feel like their coach or their parents didn't put enough money in and their kid's going to be the next one. And, and the more money they put in, the more time and the more pressure they put on, they're going to become Connor McDavid. But these are generational players. And I talk all the time about the best part of hockey should be driving in the car with your kids and stopping for a milkshake or a burger after the game or having conversations that you, know, you normally don't have. I mean, I have a 17-year-old son. If it wasn't for sports, I wouldn't spend... 10 hours a week with them in the car, but that's something that we have. And um, 
If they make it, they make it. But if not, I mean, it's a relationship you get to have with your kids. I remember Brendan Shanahan once telling the story about how when his dad dropped him off at games, his dad would sit up on the very top row and read the paper during the games. And Brendan, I think at the time, thought, why isn't he interested? And then with the benefit of hindsight, realized, actually, that was exactly the right approach to take. Make sense? Yeah, and I said in the forward of the book, like, I apologize that I'm the guy sitting by myself all the time. And, <laughs> but I just want to watch them play, and I don't want to get caught up in the other stuff. And I laughed. My dad, when I played junior hockey, he used to stand in the same spot, and he stood by himself. But I knew if I wasn't playing well, and I looked up in the second period sometimes, he'd be gone. <laughs> and uh, I remember him telling me that I knew if he didn't have a good first couple of periods, it wasn't worth staying for the third period. So <laughs> he meant well, but uh, there's obviously a different side too. Let's talk hazing. Yeah. Uh, a real curtain has been pulled back on the whole hazing thing. These initiations that uh, a lot of teams put their, I guess, particularly rookies through. For those who don't follow this stuff, give us an example of some of the crap you went through. Well, I think from early ages, I played junior C, junior B, junior A, and OHL hockey. So each year I got initiated. Uh, everything was from the basics of getting your head shaved, your entire body being shaved, um, it seemed that, in looking back on it, everything involved nudity or um, walking around naked or different things happening. And I think the one component most people talk about is a hot box that used to happen in uh, major junior hockey where uh, all the rookies would strip down at the same time, walk to the back of the bus, and they'd stand in uh, the bus bathroom with the heat on. And uh, they'd go 10, 20, 30 minutes, to hour to two hours in the bus bathroom. And uh, when there's a knock on the door, you could come out. So... Uh, stuff like that was cyclical and you didn't realize it was a badge of honor you thought that everybody did that but looking back on it you realize just <laughs> how crazy that was. Looking back on it, I mean I guess the idea behind it was that it's it's one of these teams that everybody participates, one of these things everybody participates in and it builds team spirit. Did it ever do that in your experience? No, I think if anything it, it might have made you feel closer to the guys that were in the bathroom with you, but and you thought it was this badge of honor, but looking back, I mean, there's other things that could have happened that uh, would have provided the same avenue. And my son plays baseball for one of the the top uh, baseball team in the province, the Great Lake Canadians out of London. And I drop him off as a 17 year old, and I don't think of him being bullied or being in a bus bathroom or being hazed. And these are eight coaches that teach character and integrity. And so then I look back on that and think, why would I be afraid to drop them off at a hockey game? Or why were these things happening to me? And you realize hockey is just its own sport and it's these traditions that have been passed on. No 17 year old thinks to themselves, we should stick six people in the bathroom or we should make them run around naked. These are just things that have been passed on uh, through decades. Is hazing out of the game now to the best of your knowledge? I would say at the higher levels, the CHL has really tried to take out the, the terrible uh, aspects of it, but in the Alberta Junior Hockey League this past year, uh, a captain and assistant were suspended for 14 games for uh, hazing stuff going on. And that's what I worry about the lower levels of things, double A hockey, triple A hockey, junior C, junior B. And uh, I think it's still going on. And, and these are, are things that people say, well, you hate hockey. Why are you talking about this? I just want kids to play hockey and enjoy it mm -hmm. and be protected. I love the game, certain aspects of the game, but it, it should be safe for people to come and play. I'm going to share some numbers with you and our viewers here. In 2021, surveys found that 41% of families in all the major junior hockey leagues in Canada, CHL, say there's a problem with harassment in the game, 41%, compared to 19% of general managers feeling the same way. 
Two more numbers. 24% of those surveyed said there's a problem with discrimination in the game. 24. Only 16% of general managers thought there was. That's a reality gap. Why does that gap exist? Well, I think it's, it's easy for the people involved to say that there's an issue. But when you're in control of the game, like we have people that run teams that are the coaches and general managers of a team. So if you have an issue, you report it to the coach. Well, sometimes that coach is the general manager and everybody's tied in. So it's easy for them to say there isn't a problem because as a player, I never really felt comfortable going to my coach and saying, I would never say, oh, so-and-so bullied me or this was happening because they say, uh, we would trade you. So I think that's the issue. And that's the issue that you see in those statistics. And a lot of that's from the Turnpenny report that was released in 2018. And the CHL tried to bury that report. And they would only report about things that happened from uh, after 2016 or 2018 when they did the report. Mm -hmm. So we're not even diving into 2010, 2012, or 2003, or way back. So these are, these are current numbers, and those numbers are even protected. Turnpenny is Rachel Turnpenny, who's a Toronto lawyer who gets called in to investigate some of these situations from Mm -hmm. time to time. Let's talk a bit about, uh, okay, your junior career, Kingston Frontenacs, Ontario Hockey League. Great team, great league. A lot of, not a lot, but a certain percentage of folks from that uh, league go on to play in the National Hockey League. You got drafted in 1996 by the Washington Capitals. 85th pick, what was that, third round? Uh, I think it was fourth round. Fourth round? Yeah. Sedano Chara was in the third round. Yeah. So same year as the Big Z. You looked like you were on your way to the NHL. What happened to make it take a turn for the worse? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, sometimes you show up and you realize maybe you're not good enough and you see other players and uh, playing in the Canadian Hockey League, you think it's a be-all, end-all, but then you show up to training camp and there's uh, people from Finland and Sweden and players you never heard of that were that were really good. But... For me, my problem was I, uh, I had a major concussion the year before, the year after the, the draft, and uh, I had a minor scrape of the law that was uh, uh, something that never should have happened, but it happened. And it seems like anything that bad that could have happened happened the year after uh, I got drafted and uh, uh, was not something you'd want after being picked. Okay, the minor scrape of the law was kind <laughs> of, a, it's actually a very funny story. It's in the book. I won't ruin it for those who want to buy the book. Uh, but, but the concussion is serious business. Tell us how that concussion happened and how the team you played for at the time handled it. Uh, we were playing game, I was playing for the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds and uh, we were playing in Detroit. I took a, a late hit against the boards and uh, I was unconscious on the ice and I had a fencing response. So if anyone watched Miami Dolphins uh, game last year, their quarterback, it's where your hands kind of go stiff. And uh, I was unconscious for two or three minutes on the ice. I was taken to the training room where I came to and then I was put on the bus. Uh, on the bus, I was throwing up everywhere and, uh, and in and out of consciousness. And they were trying to sneak me across to Canada because they didn't want to pay the U.S. medical bills. And uh, the trainer finally, uh, the last time I threw up, said we need to get him to the hospital. And they dropped me off to the hospital. And I got a CT scan. I had major bleeding on the brain, was rushed to uh, intensive care. And I was left there by myself in intensive care. And the bus continued home to Sault Ste. Marie. And my mom ended up driving uh, that night to join me. And uh, after the fact, after I was in there for three or four days and returned home, uh, I was given the bill, uh, given the bill for the CT scans and the care in the U.S. and was told that uh, my contract in the OHL did not cover uh, U.S. medical expenses. 
was it 17 grand, the bill? Yeah, 17 grand. And, uh, and my parents contacted my agent, Alan Walsh, who's a well-known agent that takes care of his players. And he told them that that's fine, we'll pay the bill, but uh, we'll let everybody know how you take care of your players. I mean, that's shocking, isn't it? Yeah, and I think at the time you're, you talked earlier about are you afraid to speak up? I think even at the time, I was afraid for my parents to speak up and I wanted them to pay the $16,000 because mm. I didn't want to lose my spot in the team and be the guy that's a problem in the dressing room. But looking back on it now, I mean, they promise all these things and then here's someone that won't even take care of your medical bills. In your third year in the Ontario Hockey League, you're playing for the Sioux, you got a new coach, and you write, if I had to choose one coach not to emulate in any way, it would be him. You want to name him? No, I don't think I'm comfortable naming him right now, but I will say that uh, we've talked this past year and he's reached out and he's opened, I think, my eyes to some things that were going on behind the scenes with the general manager. And uh, the general manager at the time, uh, Dave Mayville, wasn't, was, I feel like, was the root of a lot of that was going on. And he was a newer coach that things happened with him. And he's apologized. And I think to have the, this many years later to reach out and being a high-profile coach, I'm actually happy he did that. But uh, realizing now there's some things behind the scenes and things that I wished weren't true were actually true in the way that I was treated. And, uh, and uh, you just wish some people would be called to task for some of the things that they did. One of the things I was happy to read about in the book is that the greatest junior coach of all time, hmm. Brian Killer Kilray, actually knew of you when you were in the Sioux, decided to trade for you because he said, I think I can turn him into something. He always played well against us. Yeah. I think I can turn him into something. And, and it worked out. You had a great run with Killer Kill Ray's Ottawa 67s. What made it great? It was the first time you were treated as a human being. So I remember when he traded for me, he waited for me in the dressing room and said, you're coming back with me. And uh, I lived at his house with him for, for two or three days. And uh, although he's this boisterous, loud guy, if you made a mistake, um, he'd yell at you from across the ice and he'd take that sneaky like little path so the fans couldn't really see you and try and sneak in the bench. But after the game, when you thought he hated you or that you made the worst mistake ever, he'd ask how your parents were doing and he'd say, uh, here's some gas money for the way home. And he'd actually ask how you're doing. So it was the first time it seemed simple where he treated me as a human being and he let us play. We were in the same practice every day for two years, but it was high paced and it was just creativity was... Um, was expected, and uh, he let us play hockey. What's the story about him saying to one of his players, if I beat you out on the ice, all these guys are going to have... Go ahead, you know the one I'm referring to. Yeah, I mean, his best line, is my favorite line is, he'd look at you and say, uh, uh, Davis, I don't know if you're playing right wing for us or left wing for them. <laughs> that used to be, uh, and I still use that coaching now, but uh, yeah, we're one of the guys was late for practice one day, and I remember... Uh, Ryan Kilroy, probably 65 years old, 70 years old at the time, said, if, uh, if I beat you out on the ice before you get dressed, then the whole team's skating. And I just remember him going into his office and, uh, and coming out about 20 seconds later with just a hat and a whistle and his skates on his gloves saying, I beat you, we're skating, and just that little chuckle that he'd have. And uh, he was just such a funny guy, and it felt like you're being coached by your grandfather. Hat, gloves, stick, whistle, skates, and nothing else? No, just Brian Kilroy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do this. We started with a quote about you um, really not liking hockey, hating hockey, but then through playing for Killer Kilroy. And then after that, you went to the University of Western Ontario, as it then was, now Western University. 
You won a Memorial Cup with Kilray. You won a university championship at Western. Did all of that rekindle some love of the game for you? Yeah, for sure. I remember that. Um, I remember that last year in Ottawa when we won the Memorial Cup. I just remember I had the opportunity to assist on the game-winning goal. And I just remember walking to a bathroom stall in the dressing room and just sitting there by myself in my equipment and just kind of tears flowing just... I mean, you have the joy of winning, but it was just seeing all the things that you'd been through and just that joy of playing hockey again was brought back. And, uh, and then that led me going to Western. I realized uh, where I was in the hockey world and uh, I could play professionally after, but if I got my education and did that and surrounded by Clark Singer and just a great program at Western, it, I left there and I just realized why I, why I love the game. And the whole book is there's a love-hate relationship with it. You, you, you sort of threw that away there. You assisted on the Memorial Cup winning goal in triple overtime? That one was, uh, was the first overtime. First overtime. And then at Western, we won in triple overtime. Okay, so you had some pretty dramatic, exciting yeah. moments there. Yeah. And I see you're smiling, so you still love them. Well, those are the good moments. People say, do you hate hockey? I, I love those moments, and those teammates are or some of my best friends and moments I'll never forget. You also talked in the book about how you got that scar on your upper lip, and I must confess, when you described it in the book, I thought, that's pretty gross, but I'm sure you got a good plastic surgeon and you know <laughs> you probably can't even see it anymore. I got news for you, Justin. I can see it. <laughs> you, you've got a good souvenir from your playing tapes there, right? Well, don't tell my mom. My mom's been on me for about 20 years to get that fixed, but uh, the book's called Conflicted Scars, and that's one of the outward scars that uh, is a part of me. You've got a quote in here from Jamie McLennan, uh, who's TSN, formerly a, a goalie, who said, hockey is 95% amazing, but the 5%, there are serious issues there and they have to be dealt with. What's the biggest obstacle to getting that 5% that's a problem dealt with? I think it's diversity in the game. I think it's, you look at coaching, it's the same coaches that get recycled. It's the same general managers that get recycled. People get fired, people get hired. And it's the same way of thinking. Um, there's, uh, there's females getting hired now in, in front offices and in coaching staffs, and, which is great. It, it's a different aspect for people. People that didn't play the hockey, didn't play hockey at a high level that understand the game and understand different numbers. And that's, that's a huge change for it. And then they can look from the outside. I remember telling stories in my uh, staff room, I'm a teacher, and uh, telling, stories to some of the people that I work with and them just looking at me and thinking that's the craziest thing they've ever heard. But in a hockey room and the people I hang out with, those are normal stories. So I think when I say diversity and different uh, voices, uh, I think that changes things so people don't realize the things that we view as being normal. Um, they realize that they're very abnormal. You won a championship, the Memorial Cup, which is junior hockey. You won a championship with Western in the university hockey. You won the Allen Cup which is a championship for senior men's hockey. So you've had, some, you've had your share of success. And you played in Germany, too. You yeah. played overseas as well, made some money playing over there. My question is, is there a part of you today that wishes, I wish I had a cup of coffee in the NHL? There's a time where I said I would have done anything for it, but I have friends that played a game or two or played two seasons in the NHL, and I see where their life has taken them and the relationship with their, their family. And... I mean, if I could have played, great. But, I mean, I've been married for over 20 years. I've got three great kids. I love my job teaching where I teach. And uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't throw anything away that's happened. And I think we're all meant to be. There's a purpose to our life why we're in certain places. And when I look back on my career, even why 
even how I'm here talking to you and I've written a book, I think without the bad things being happened and me being more successful maybe in hockey, I wouldn't have the voice that I have uh, to talk right now and see some change in the game. That's true, and I don't mean to be a mercenary about this, but what did you get paid to play in Germany the last year you were there? Uh, I think we were about 4,000 euros a, a month, which, uh, which was good for paying off my student debt, but the good thing about Germany is you don't pay for anything once you're there, so everything's covered, and the best part about going is you only play two games a week, so okay. travel is limited. I get that, but you know, had you played even one season in the NHL, you'd have made three quarters of a million dollars as the lowest salary you could have made. Right, but then you see that when you make the million dollars, you buy the million dollar suits and the million dollar cars. I mean, I uh, guys I played with that got minimal bonuses and were buying Land Rovers and expensive suits, and I learned to be a thousand air from a young age. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, the, the book was a, a terrific read, and you've got some really important things to say in there, so I'm glad you said them. Conflicted Scars, An Average Player's Journey to the NHL, Justin Davis. Thanks, Justin. Perfect, thank you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.